This you know. The years travel fast, and time after time I've done the tell. But this ain't one body's tell. It's the tell of us all. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute. You got to listen this and member, because this is Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we are rolling back the vault door on Minute 101, which begins with one last shot of Savannah and the others leaning out the side of the plane, and it ends with a tracking shot past a crowd of intent listeners. With us once again are a couple of folks that got the luck, Crystal Beth and John Robert Wilson from Unlimited Lives Radio. You got that luck, brah. Hello. You got the luck, you get one look at it, and you got the hots for it. It's the sexiest. Isn't it a lady in a gold dress that's really pretty? Isn't that luck, lady luck? Lady luck? Yeah, she's fine. <laughs> what? Uh, oh my goodness. Let's, uh, I think you're thinking of the mascot or the avatar uh, during the opening sequence of Judge Judy, the Golden Justice. <laughs> oh no, that's just Judge Judy herself, and she's beautiful too. True. Welcome, uh, welcome our voices to your ear holes, folks. <laughs> <laughs> I seriously considered doing my own version of your intro sequence to the Unlimited Lives Radio podcast, but I realized that you have the same amount of people, but it's structured differently where it's like, could I step into the shoes of John Robert Wilson? And I just, I don't know if I could do it. I think we have a different shoe size. <laughs> yeah, I i don't. I, I wear his shoes and I look like a little girl trying on her mom's heels for the first time. <laughs> every time I try to do it, I mess up and I listen to it every week and I still can't do it. Uh, it's kind of funny. I've always, even when I was doing um, you know improv in New York for the longest time, I remember we started doing shows in this little tiny theater called Under St. Mark's. And we had, that had this really, really tiny little uh, ramshackle PA system and we would just start the show with just like a pop song. I was like, guys, we have this PA system. Let's, you know, get the crowd all hyped up. And so no matter what, whether I was on a show and if you've listened to any podcast I've done in the past, like Here to Help, another defunct podcast, I'm always like the announcer where I say, you know, what the show is about because I'm so OCD about podcast quality and audio quality. And I know since I work on the internet, I know how fickle listeners can be. So I'm always like, let's just tell people what they're listening to right away, <laughs> you know? And you guys do a great job of that. But thanks, I guess, for saying that I'm a hat that no one can wear. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes when you've got a certain style of doing things and a particular way about you, it's a style that no one can really parrot. Not everyone can pull off a French tuck. Is it called a French tuck? Is that what? <laughs> when you tuck your penis no, into your legs? No, where you just tuck the front of your shirt in and leave the rest of no. your shirt untucked. Crystal, well, that's called a mademoiselle. Oh, is it? I had no idea what that was called, so you got one up on me. Yeah, everybody can pull off a French tuck. What are you talking about? I was like, yeah, I don't have a penis. I can't. (laughs) As we start today's minute, we are in the POV of the air truck as it flies between the bombed out buildings of Sydney. And it's kind of hard to see because the shot's kind of grainy and everything's all the same color. But it appears to me that the city has been reclaimed by the desert, which is odd because I never look at the east coast of Australia and think, oh yes, that is a barren, deserted region. We saw a lot of green in the first movie. And of course, that's down near Melbourne. And of course, 
Sydney is a little bit higher up on the coast, but it's still pretty verdant. It's not as deserty. So along with the ocean disappearing for some reason, apparently the desert has just completely engulfed the continent. Well, that's what deserts do. John has grown up going to his family's ranch in Texas, and it used to be this green, lush place. And just in how long John's been alive, this sands from the south have just come up and now it's really dry and crept up yeah it's changed the climate of the entire region and that's just a couple couple decades decades. Mm -hmm. so i imagine if something like this happens goes to show you how fragile our ecosystem is folks the world's gonna take back herself when we all die (laughs) yep everything is very finite so we've just gotta use as much of it as we can as fast as we can thinking (laughs) nothing of the next generation just burn it all and leave nothing for anybody else that's right even if we do good on earth the sun has an only about five billion years of fuel left i mean it's it's in the middle of its age already mm-hmm. we got five billion years folks let's get to work yep <laughs> use those plastic straws and don't clip your toenails can rings oh, gotcha. or anything like that just toss them right at a sea turtle and let him choke on it because we're all gonna die this has been a public service announcement from mad max minute we're all gonna die yay this show is brought to you by taco bell (laughs) i don't know (laughs) (laughs) you notice too as we're kind of panning through the model city of the ruined the desolate sydney some of the buildings are hyper detailed but some of them look like just cut out cardboard boxes yeah almost like a frayed cardboard edge to it yeah i see it it's almost like the interns quit and the PAs all quit at the same time. Yeah. And the guy was the main producer was like, well, I'm not going to build this. He's like, I'm the head of props. And then like the gaffer was like, hey, guys, why don't we just use my boxes and just poke <laughs> holes in them? <laughs> I'm sure that's how it went. Dennis Nicholson was like, OK, guys, it's got to look distressed. And then they made all this. And he's like, guys, that just looks distressing. Ha! <laughs> Eh, cover it in sand no one will notice. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Unless you're looking at it minute by minute. Right, 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 right. So are we supposed to believe that this city is completely deserted and that there's no one living in it? I find that very hard to believe. Yeah, me I too. do too. Especially by the very end of this minute, we get that tracking shot across a crowd. And even if we're looking at a new generation, which obviously we are, there's a lot of kids there. There are adults that we don't recognize. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. The, those people had to have been there. Or maybe they were in the, like the sort of area, but it took this group of people to get there for the group to actually coalesce. It just seems too unbelievable that Savannah and these kids are the only ones on the entire continent that thought, gee, I wonder if Sydney is still there. Let's go for it. Yeah. And there would have been a certain amount of people who survived whatever happened to the city. Yeah. And who never left. And to quote one of my favorite movies, and if it's just us, it seems like an awful waste of space. That movie's contact. (laughs) (laughs) That movie's contact. They're talking about outer space, but I think it applies to Sydney as well. You know, in a a post-apocalyptic world, you would think that major metropolitan centers you would want to avoid, you know? Or maybe you want to avoid when stuff goes down in the first place, but then once things start to cool down, you can go there knowing that you have shelter and places to hide and maybe, I don't know, spam. True, true. But it seems like the trope is like, even like in zombie movies, that's where all the zombies are. You don't go into the city, but you, but then like the one kid has to to get the special supplies 
or or you know what other post-apocalyptic and we're not supposed to go into cities like uh, or i guess i'm i guess i'm just thinking zombie movies now all i can think of is like um world war z or fallout yeah Yeah. or doomsday preppers any of them none of them live in the city except for that one weirdo that's learning krav maga in manhattan that was the guy (laughs) he was in the bronx and he was learning krav maga and the thing is he was prepping for was the yellowstone volcano that's right (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so Doomsday Preppers is one of our favorite shows. Uh, but I think that, yes, a city is bad in the start of the apocalypse. But once everyone starts dying because they can't take care of themselves, I mean, that's where stuff is. Well, the problem with that is that because the city is a concentration of people, when they start dying and social services break down, no one's doing anything with those bodies anymore. Be a breeding ground for cats. And disease. Yeah. Well, cats would eat bodies, then disease. turn feral. And then grow large off the radiation. And you have giant tiger-sized house cats that have a taste for flesh. It's the ROAS. <laughs> They're real. So, Crystal, you play Fallout. Now, how many rads do you think these guys are under right now on the plane? Not not, not in the post shot when they're all gathered around. Three. Three rads? Okay. Rick? Ah. Uh, it's I been... <laughs> By my estimation, I think it's been about a decade and and a half since the destruction of humanity took place. That's pretty recent, and I think they'd be sucking down a few more rads than that. Unless they have some sort of cleansing winds that have whipped through this city to clean out all the radiation and stuff. They do. Yeah, the city has been sandblasted. That hurricane eye. Oh, so not only is it a protective sandstorm, but it's a sandblasting, cleany sandstorm. Yeah. You know, we're assuming that Sydney was hit by nuclear weapons yeah it's true there's a lot of other weapons out there they could have just been hit with regular missiles yeah trebuchets that's kind of what i'm thinking or just like a (laughs) a sand missile that just gets sand everywhere and everyone's too just grossed out to to stay there and they all leave (laughs) or maybe it was environmental warfare Ooh. maybe there was a bomb that purposely causes some sort of catastrophe in the environment and then the the ocean drained away and the entire continent turned to desert. <laughs> and it like vaporized the ocean. <laughs> that was the best bath I ever had. It's just so eye-opening. <laughs> Speaking of eye-opening, I learned recently that George Miller was the original, I think, writer of Contact. Really? Oh, all right. Let me double check just to be sure. You brought up Contact and I was like, wait a second. I learned something about that recently. <laughs> That'd be a different movie. Yeah. George Miller worked on the screenplay for a year, working closely with Carl Sagan and Andrean before he parted ways with Warner Brothers. Because there weren't enough monsters. I guess so. Can you imagine a version of Contact written by George Miller? That'd be crazy. No, it would probably be pretty down to earth because it's not a post-apocalyptic genre film. And he actually is a really, really good director and screenwriter outside of this one series. But you get the idea. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, is it that George Miller or is it the other George Miller? No, it's it's our George Miller. Okay. I was <laughs> devastated to learn that there are two George Millers and that you have to pay attention to which one they're talking about. Mm. Broke my heart. The other George Miller directed a movie or he wrote or directed. I can't remember anymore. You're talking about Man from Snowy River or was it a different one? It was. Uh, I don't remember anymore. Okay. Because <laughs> I put it out of my head because it turns out it was the other George Miller and I was a little heartbroken. Well, yeah. If it's not the George Miller that directed the Mad Max movies, it's not even worth remembering. Oh, now I feel bad for the other George Miller. I don't think you need to. Don't feel bad for him. He's making more money than us. That's very true. Yeah. That's like feeling bad for any of the other guys on Twitter named Richard Ingham. I follow them. 
but you don't need to pity them. That's I want to keep tabs on what people with my name are doing. In case they're sullying your name? Yeah. In case <laughs> you think they're doing they do the same stuff. to you? Pop into their DMs and be like, dude, level out and fly right. I have a lot of drag queens with my name. <laughs> yeah. I don't know about you guys, but I've made it my personal life mission to ruin the reputation of Chief Justice John Roberts. <laughs> How is that going for you? Slow, 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 but sure. The, the turtles wins the race. That's how it goes, right? Yep. The turtle wins the race. That's not how it goes. No, it's not. The slow and steady wins the race. There you go. Thank you. Tortoise and the hare is a little play. There you go. See? And by play, I mean story. And by story, I mean book. Fable. It's fable. There, there we go. go. Yeah, we, I we, got there. Yeah, we made it. Before I got married, I was the only person in the world with my name. And now there's a bunch of me. Thanks, Richard. Wow. Way to ruin that, hey, Rick. you're the one that decided to take my name. That's true. We I didn't could, have to. We could have been one of those cool couples where it's like, I'm Rick Ingham. And you could be like, and I'm Julia Lamming. I was just about to ask what your last name was, but we made it. <laughs> Lamming. Yeah, change one letter in Julia's last name, and it would be my name just swept around. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Oh, what a fun word game! Not only are you getting great content for your ears, you're getting word games for your brain. <laughs> I'm the only one of me if I don't use my middle name. Gilbert. Well, there you go. Crystal Gilbert. <laughs> So we come to the end of another Mad Max movie and the narration starts up again. This time it's not so much an epilogue as much as a fast forward a couple of years, I assume, to the tribe that left being a bit more established in Sydney and they are gathered in this giant ruined room. It's a factory. I bet it's a razor factory and it's a burned down razor factory. And the reason why I say that is because look at all of them clean shaven heads. <laughs> Okay. Wow. I should have known you meant shaving razor, but when you said razor, the only thing I thought of were those fold-up scooters. The scooters? Oh. Yeah, I went I to the scooter. Bunch I of like scoot jockeys. Sorry, folks. <laughs> Nobody went to the phone. <laughs> oh, the poor razor phone. <laughs> with the fact that we're ending with narration, it's sort of reminiscent to Road Warrior with the second movie and that narration, but... It's different here because with Road Warrior, we started with narration and ended with narration. It was nicely bookended. And that's where we got going with the whole campfire theory where this isn't chronological. You don't have to worry about it. These are just stories told. And then we got this movie where it was very definitively, there is a timeline. This is how long it's been. And you could argue that campfire theory that we so lovingly prescribed to during season two is still in effect here because the story of Max and his exploits could very well be something that Savannah would share during the tell mm. when she's got everyone gathered together. But in order to get the full picture, she would have to converse with Pig Killer, converse with Jedediah, converse with Master. She'd have to go to so many different people to get the story put together. It's not like Road Warrior where you had first-hand accounts from the gyro captain and from the feral child because Max was always hanging around those two. Here, there are so many little holes where Max just disappeared from everybody else that it would be a little tricky to fill in all those tiny details. And speaking of details... I don't think Savannah is all that concerned with nitpicky little details when she's doing the tell because it's more of a broad overview than any sort of in-depth history lesson. It's no C-3PO story. I know that 
you want to tie the two movies in a neat bow like that, that they're both stories being told, it just doesn't fly with this one. Hmm. Max isn't the type to tell Savannah things like the conversation he had with Auntie Mm -hmm. up in the penthouse or his experience. Well, anything between getting his things stolen and heading down to Underworld, Max would have had to tell those to her. Mm -hmm. And he just isn't the type to voluntarily share information. I know that they spent a lot of time walking around in the desert, but would Max really waste his breath telling Eddie and Tubba and Anna Goanna his life story? No. He wouldn't do that. So that's why I think they're tying up this movie with narration just because they tied up the last one with narration. And it's a good way to show, hey, all of these children survived. We're not having any more dead children in this movie. We're drawing the line at two. Well, three if you count Jedediah Jr. falling out the side of the plane. (laughs) Yes. Because we don't see him again. I don't think we get to count Gecko. His death was off screen. It wasn't a death. It was just a disappearance. Well, in that case, we're down to one. And that's not fun at all. No. One is the loneliest number. Yes, more death, please. I mean, two can be as bad as one. It's the loneliest number since the number one. But that's beside the point. <laughs> this kind of really caught my eye. During the shot when they're kind of down slowly to illustrate the grandioseness, the grandiosity of the building, the razor factory that they're having this meeting in. (laughs) As the camera stops panning down, you'll notice that they have torches and what looks like a couple braziers lit for light. Mm -hmm. But I don't know why they have those things lit. They have an incredibly great light source right behind them just that's emanating. It looks like a a spotlight that's got some smoke around it and it's illuminating the entire room. It's it's making way more light than even the, the fires are. Yeah. I don't know what that I don't know. And and we know that outside is a sepia toned hellscape. So um, we don't want to look. We don't know what it looks like in the future. That's true. The sun might be shining in right now. That's probably what's happening. Or maybe this a single ray is coming in and shining off someone's clean shaven head. I like that. Could you even consider that to be daytime? It could be that the roof is tinted, but it almost looks like it's a nighttime story tell. Yeah. And they are using this giant light source as a main source of light. But if you've got braziers and you've got flame pots and whatnot, why wouldn't you use them? That's true. It's good for ambiance. It's like church. Church in the olden days when no one else had any money. We're going to the tell. And you know that the electricity is going to be turned on. Maybe they'll get out the relics and they'll they'll have the wave smoke at us. (laughs) (laughs) Like 10 million candles. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) savannah is talking to everybody she says this you knows the years travel fast and time after time i've done the tell but this ain't one buddy's tell blah 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 the important thing about this bit at the end is that it is very nearly the same as what was said way back in minute 54 the first time we heard the tell now the tells diverge at one point because the histories are different. But it starts off very similarly. Savannah's, of course, starting this one off instead of Slake, because back in 54, Slake was like, ah, this you knows, I be the first tracker. Times past count, I done the tell, but it weren't me that tumbled Walker, so I'm going to make Savannah do it. And of course, this time, it's Savannah saying that, oh yeah, I do the tell all the time. And then she starts saying, but this ain't one body's tell, it's the tell of us all. She adds the word, but she changes the word story to tell for this later one. And then from there on out, it's pretty much all the same. She changes the word birthed 
to newborn. So their language is evolving. That's cool to notice. That also tells me that there were other people there that they joined a group or were the catalyst for a group to form around them. Mm -hmm. That there are other language influences going on. The last thing I noticed is that instead of saying, I'm looking behind us now across the count of time down the long haul into history back, she shortens that up to, I was looking behind us now into history back. She cuts out some of that flowery language Mm. so that it's not quite as long. When I was rewatching this part with Crystal, I was like... I want to watch Cloud Atlas again. (laughs) They talk like those island people in the future in Cloud Atlas. Or better yet, the people in that movie talk like these people, rather. There's a line that really bothers me in here. Okay. I seized those of us that got the luck and started the hall for home. That tells me, which I already knew, but this is just how I get to bring it up, that they left the rest of the tribe behind. Yeah. That really bothers me. It tells me that they didn't really have any tribal loyalty. Savannah had a different idea about how the future was going to go, and most people disagreed with her. A few agreed, and they went off. But the whole point of the leaving is to find the answers they're looking for and then to come back and get everybody else, right? Well, we don't know that they didn't. Like, if we're we're in the future now, they could have taken the plane back. Do you think they did? Hmm. I don't know. I never thought about it until right now. I was just thinking of an optimistic (laughs) way of looking at that because it made me mad. You could look at it from the angle that Jedediah would leave them in Sydney and he would fly back because he had a home. He had a grotto full of stuff and him and Jedediah Jr. would live there and you could argue that maybe he flew back and when they flew back they said, hey, we need you to find our friends so that they can come and join us here in Tomorrow Morrowland. But it could also be that they just said, Well, they didn't want to come with us in the first place, so we'll just leave them in the crack in the earth, and they can have their thing going, and we'll have our thing going. We got the luck. We started the hall for home. You don't get to share in my bread because I grew the wheat, and I picked the wheat, and I ground the flour, and, you know, that whole chicken in the loaf of bread story thing. Yeah, I use that analogy all the time. Maybe it's something in between where they were like, hey, go find our friends. And he was like, yeah, sure, I'll find your friends. Went to his grotto and was like, so weird, no one was there. They must have left. (laughs) (laughs) He got interrupted reading that magazine when Max and the kids showed up. So he flew back to his grotto, picked up that magazine, kept reading. Halfway back was like, oh, no, I was supposed to. They'll never know. (laughs) (laughs) I can just imagine they find a burned out like stationary store somewhere there in the city. And it's got a bunch of postcards. And one of them says, wish you were here. And they tie it to the leg of a bird and send it off flying. Oh. Oh, no. A couple of years down the road, oh. Slake is out wandering and he finds this dead bird with a postcard. It's just, he picks it up. He's like, I can't read. Like <laughs> <laughs> a twist. Where the tell diverges from what we heard back in minute four is more or less where Julia starts getting annoyed with it, where Savannah starts talking about those of them that got the luck, started the hall for home, and she remembers how it led them here to Sydney and how they was heartful because we seen what there once was, one look, and we knew we'd got it straight. Those who had gone before had knowing of things beyond our reckoning, even beyond our dreaming. I call BS on this. So they finally make it to their Tomorrow Morrowland, and it's this dried out husk of a city that was once Sydney. And they're like, oh my gosh, we're so lucky we finally got here. This place is amazing. 
this place is not amazing. Why would you want to live here? <laughs> they had life so good back in the crack in the earth. That's true. And they gave it up. Okay, I will give you that they gave it up for a dream. But they finally have attained their dream and it's this crap hole of a city. And they are so happy about that. Yeah, the other group's probably just as happy, honestly. Right. Maybe they went back and he was like, we're fine. That sounds terrible. <laughs> right. <laughs> we don't really like all the wind sand. We are fine with sand on the ground, but not the kind in the air. Bye-bye. So you're trying to tell me that it would have been better for them to stay in the place with a fresh source of water, ample vegetation, fish, wild pigs, relative safety and obscurity from the outside world, and that they were foolish to go to a place that's completely dried out, bombed out, no water anywhere, and probably a huge target for raiders? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I understand Savannah's, like, drive, but her lack of utter disappointment <laughs> is baffling to me. Yeah. Sure, the city is bombed out and being retaken by the desert and really looks in a bad way, but if the sands are blowing in, there might be parts of the city that are buried by sand that you can access by going down into the buildings. And maybe there are things like bookstores, libraries, museums that are more or less still intact, that were spared most of the destruction of the collapse of society. And so they would get there and Master and Pig Killer probably know how to read, so they could pass on that knowledge so they could find all these books and all this information and it could be that oh wow this is so beyond our knowing and our dreaming and our reckoning and all that other stuff okay <laughs> could be i will give you that one advantage of knowledge Finding a library, finding museums and whatnot, I will give that to you. I think it's even plausible that those things might survive. Take a museum, for example. Even if the main museum was bombed, museums have storerooms that are away from the general building. They're in the basement oh, or true. they're in the annex. Yeah. That those secondary locations might not have been hit so hard. So things would remain. Yeah, those are like the research centers. Those, those are the places that like uh, academics use for research, right? Yeah, that's where the good stuff is. Yeah. They show us the stuff they're no longer interested in. Exactly, yeah. Plus, it would be pretty cool just to be able to explore that area. Like, you see those videos online of, oh gosh, what do they call them? Urban spelunkers or something <laughs> yeah. like that? Oh, yeah. yes. Like, those are really interesting. Sometimes they're really creepy, the places these folks go into. Like everywhere in New York. Yeah, especially <laughs> the ones where they get the ghosts on camera. The mole people. Ooh. <laughs> Oh, what did I see recently? Those ghost hunting shows are just 45 minutes of guys going into an area, pissing off ghosts, and then five minutes of them freaking out when the ghosts get tired of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That actually raises an interesting question. About ghosts? Well, the whole idea that these cities are husks where probably a lot of people died so they might be in a situation where they're going through these buildings and exploring them for supplies and relics and things like that and it's like a fallout game where you walk in on a scene and there's just skeletons hanging out yeah that's creepy but also probably they're not just they're desensitized it doesn't bother them yeah certainly not screw loose yeah screw loose is all about bones He's got no bones about them. <laughs> <laughs> All right, get out. 
<laughs> Get out. Now, I may be mistaken, and I don't want to take time to go back and rewind in the minutes, but I'm pretty sure when we see Screwloose in his grotto that he actually has a couple of, I want to say, human-shaped skulls? I believe so, yes. I think I remember us talking about it. Yeah. So he'd probably walk in, find the bony remains of some unfortunate person, and he'd be like, ooh, a complete set. (laughs) (laughs) He'd start making his own new grotto. He's just built a house out of it entirely. Lincoln Logs. Do we see Screw Loose in this minute or next minute? I think it's next minute, yeah. Next minute, okay. Yeah. I'll save my Screw Loose talk then. Okay. <laughs> so I'm trying to think if I was in the Waiting Ones' position, I think the first thing I'd do is climb up to the top of one of these buildings just to get a lay of the land, just to see what's still there. Yeah. Sydney's not a small place. It is a sprawling metropolis. Oh, yeah. So we see a couple of tall buildings, but there's got to be more out there. There's got to be. Unless they fell into the ocean before it evaporated. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I still want to know what happened to the ocean. (laughs) It's a really funny visual of the buildings swirling around a vortex. There is a game on my phone that I like to play. It is called... Holes, right? Hole.io. So I think it's supposed to be pronounced holio and it is a competitive game in certain formats where you are a hole and you've got like uh, 10 15 other people that are also holes and the idea is you slide around the city and you swallow things like people and garbage cans and those posts that stick out of the sidewalk that are supposed to keep cars from driving into buildings you suck all that stuff up and after a certain amount of things absorbed you grow in size and so the idea is you need to become the biggest hole the fastest that way you can swallow everybody up and get the high score and it's incredibly addictive to play and once you get big enough you can swallow buildings yep and the matches are only two minutes maybe mad max actually takes place in the future and you are the one that swallowed the ocean because you got so good at this game it became real (laughs) oh now you guys have heard of katamari damasi right yes I have no idea what just came out of your mouth. <laughs> really? Oh, that's exactly what I was going to say. It's like, it's just like Katamari. Uh, do you guys want to explain it? Uh, so Katamari is an old game, I think for the PS1 or PS2. I can't remember. I think it's PS2. Yeah. So you are this guy and there's like this king that wants you to gather up all this stuff. And you just basically go around this open world, rolling everything up into a ball and you pick up stuff and you keep them in your ball. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And you're like rolling. There's like school buses and stuff in your ball and uh it's a crazy game yeah <laughs> i forget how it ended i, I can't played it in so long but yeah i just know that it's you have a ball of stuff and you just get more stuff in your ball and everything just sticks to it and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger i remember too like i never really played the game too much i always played it at friends houses and stuff like that but i remember the music was like yeah it was very bright very upbeat meanwhile you're devastating the city yeah you're taking cars and people and animals and trees and they're just getting stuck onto this ever-growing monolith ball and then at the end of the level this king of the cosmos comes back picks up your ball and be like too small do it again right very judgy that way that Sounds very addicting and enjoyable. <laughs> it was. It was. Loads of fun. Probably not what happened in this city. 
No, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, in a relatively serious post-apocalyptic movie? You right. don't think that's what happened? <laughs> no. Julia, if you were in that situation, you just land the air truck, you hop off, what would the first thing you do be? Oh. Strip club. <laughs> I would find a safe place to sleep. <laughs> you take a nap. Well, no, I mean, yes, I would take a nap because I can always take a nap. But no, legitimately, they need to find a safe place that is going to be their center of we live here, Mm -hmm. where they always come back to and they can store their things and it's going to be safe. That's probably the first thing I would do is establish a safe spot before exploring further out. Okay, so my first thing would be recon. Your first thing would be shelter. John and Crystal, what about you guys? My first would be to go to the bathroom because I saw what happened to the last person that had to go on the plane. So I would wait and I would get off that plane and then I would go to the bathroom. Seven hours is a long time. It is a long time. The first thing I would do is I'd be wanting to recover human knowledge and find my way to the nearest (laughs) underground museum. Oh, I just realized with Crystal's comment, these kids have never seen a toilet before. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, they've probably seen one. Yeah, they've never seen an active one. For a working one. I remember this, I think it was like a made-for-TV movie, probably in the 90s, where there was like this refugee family that was taken in by an American family, like white picket fence, middle America type family. And the refugee family like didn't know how to use toilets. Their part of the world didn't have toilets like our toilets. And so every time they went to the bathroom, it was this big conundrum on how this whole thing works. And there came a point where one of the little kids like figured it out and learned how to use the toilet and it was a big deal yum made for tv that screenwriter got paid (laughs) (laughs) i don't think there's much else i can say about that but that screenwriter (laughs) got paid that day (laughs) oh i think the Four of us have very different ideas on what we would do first. We'd probably make a pretty good team. (laughs) Oh, wait, but you shouldn't split up. That's true. That is true. You never split the party. In that case, we would all die. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. I would fall off the top of a building. John would get crushed underneath a giant stuffed grizzly bear in a museum. Yep. (laughs) Crystal would, I don't know, snakes crawl up out of of toilets. Crystal would get a UTI because she held her pee for seven hours. (laughs) And it's all sandy. What a horrible way to go. Death by UTI. Mm. I died either way. Yum, yum, yummy. I think I might, if I was going to die either by infection or by falling out of a plane i think i'd choose the plane yeah it would be faster and it would be not a not necessarily a fun ride down but an interesting ride down yeah i think it's all about confidence when you're falling out of an airplane without a parachute it's all about confidence right that's what they say i'm <laughs> <laughs> just picturing rick flying jumping out of a who plane who is saying with, uh, this <laughs> you know you know when people are posing and they they're on their side with their leg up and their hand their head in their hand do you know that pose i think it's called the burt like, reynolds yeah the burt reynolds like the deal with it pose i just picture rick falling out of the plane like that he's like i look confident I, no parachute it's like when they had the deadpool sequel and they had the skydiving sequence and you had that one guy that's just an ordinary dude peter i think it was his name yeah i think so he's got like no formal training but he jumps out of that airplane and you see him falling and he's got all the confidence of someone who is clearly just putting it on but they look good doing it i'd go head first down into the ground i want that ground to remember me <laughs> <laughs> 
It's sand. It will not remember you. What would be really awful is if you fall out of the plane because Jedediah does a hard bank to the wrong side. Then you fall into soft sand, but it turns out that it's not solid soft sand. It's dry quicksand. So you survive the fall and then get sucked down into the quicksand. Become the third victim in this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although, can you argue that the horse was a victim of quicksand? Its carcass was a victim of quicksand? <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor Artax. <laughs> Why does this always happen in movies? <laughs> Why do the horses always die? <laughs> That's just the law of the West. I know a movie where no horses die. What, all dogs go to heaven? <laughs> well, crap, now I can't remember the name of the movie. Are you thinking of Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken? Yes, thank you. Wild Why? Hearts Can't Be Broken. Doesn't the horse die at the end? Nope, no horses die in that movie. How is it that in a movie all about diving horses, no horses die? Because nobody died. Because it's pretty safe, except it could make you go blind. So, right. you know. Oh, yeah, it's pretty safe, except for the main plot of that movie where the girl <laughs> from Burn Notice goes blind. It's my favorite show. That's right, it is the girl from Burn Notice. <laughs> it's my dad's favorite show, too. Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken was one of my favorite movies ever. I loved that movie. I haven't seen it in a long time. I wonder if we will still like it. Sometimes maybe you shouldn't watch movies from your childhood that you love. Maybe you shouldn't watch them again. Just remember them as they were. Yeah. But no horses get hurt in that movie. Do you remember the first time we brought up that movie on this podcast? No, but I know we've talked about it before. It was a hiatus episode. It was the Braveheart hiatus episode. Oh. Because William Wallace, Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken's, Broken's a horse out of some guy's window into a moat. And that horse does not survive. No, it does not. <laughs> you had to bring us down. <laughs> oh, I was having such a great time up until right now. <laughs> well, on that stellar note, let me say that when we come back on Friday, that's right, I'm wrapping it up. Savannah is going to conclude story time by explaining why they light so many signal fires every night. And it's not to call for help from Rohan. But we also get one last shot of Max in silhouette and we'll fade to black and start the end credits. So we're at the end of the movie. That's Friday. So come on back for that. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. And our outro music is We Don't Need Another Hero by MilitiaVox of MilitiaVox.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute, and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com where you can check out our Tee Public storefront by clicking the store link join our patreon by clicking the support link or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link thank you for joining us for minute 101 of beyond thunderdome we'll see you next time Everybody!